Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, helping you live your life to the fullest. How? Real people, including celebrities, real advice, real places, products, and businesses, real life stories. It's all right here for you with this radio show, printed magazine, websites, community, and more. Remember to visit us online, too, at besteveryou.com. And now here's your host, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to the Best Ever You Show. We've got a power of social media show today. I came across Kate Bowler. I think I'm going to say your name right. I didn't get a chance to. Uh, I've been doing that all week, making sure I have people's names right. Every show I've done this Aww. week, did I get that right, Kate? No, Bowler? you're doing great. Yes. Bowler. Okay, good. Bowler. Okay, we didn't chat too much before you're on the show here. So, but Power of Social Media show. Um, I found you on Twitter, and um, you were so kind to say yes to being here today on such short notice. And I just really appreciate you being open to being on the show. And everybody listening, Kate Bowler, this is cool. Um, Kate is an assistant Aww. professor at Duke Divinity School. Okay, we're talking Duke University here. This is pretty amazing. Um, she's a graduate <laughs> of Yale Divinity School, so you know you're talking to brilliance here. And we're going to listen to Brilliance and Duke University, um, both. You're a graduate of both? Wait a minute. Oh, yeah, my God. Just, it's a never-ending school program. <laughs> oh That's how it goes. God, I love that. Okay, well, um, yeah, I don't have a degree like that. I have a degree from St. Ambrose University, which is lovely and beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I love St. Ambrose. And um, so I, I completely um, i am so excited for this conversation. And um, aside from degrees, what I want people to know about you, um, I, I love the degrees part because it adds this, like, credibility and a layer of, like, um, thinking about things differently and thought leadership and so forth. And I love it when we have guests on like that. But also, um, you're an author. And um, I really want to talk about um, your, your memoir, your, your books that you've written and things like that throughout the show. Um, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved I, uh, was published in ran- from, by Random House in 2018. And um, I'm just super excited to, to hear all about that. But um, also, uh, we're going to go the cancer direction too um, on this show because you you were diagnosed with stage four cancer at age 35 and that was in 2015. So I'm glad you're, you're here with us and um, talking to us and um, can share your story um, oh, to touch I'm other so people's lives. Well, this is a treat for me. So nice to touch base. You were so kind to reach out. Thank you. Um, to everybody listening, to, you can visit Kate's website at katebowler.com. It's K-A-T-E-B-O-W-L-E-R.com. So, Kate, um, welcome again. And um, would you like to start with your book, or would you like to start with what's happened to you, or what, where would you like to start? Oh, sure. Well, I guess, um, yeah, I guess we can work from now and work backwards. I, uh, well, let's see. Um I wrote this memoir called uh, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved after I got a sudden stage four cancer diagnosis um, two years ago. And I wrote it to try to be honest, to just say, um, what did I really expect from my life? Do I imagine a kind of divine conspiracy where everything is just trying to make me better? Or like, how do I account for tragedy when it comes to my door? So it's, um, it's an account of um, me 
uh, facing down my illness at the same time as I'm reflecting back on 10 years of being an expert in this thing called the history of the American prosperity gospel, which is the belief that God gives people with the right kind of faith, health and wealth and everything they're hoping for. Hmm. Do you, um, where where are your thoughts at these days with all of this? Yeah, well, I guess um, it's just a weird minute in my life because um, I'm in the managing illness phase, which means that cancer is kind of an ever-present reality. And at the same time, I'm just trying to learn how to live after certainty, so live after some things I imagined for myself were no longer possible. So it's just kind of a weird place because in a lot of ways my life looks like it did before. Like right now I'm sitting in my office where like I still work and like it seems to have, you know, I still have my, I have this gorgeous little kid and I've got this husband I love and like all that looks like the same that it was before. But like deep down I feel like a, like a pretty different person. What do you want to say to other people who have this going on in their lives? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess um, I guess the first thing I would want to say is, like, bless you. I am so sorry that something is taking your life apart, too. Um, and also just that I've tried to find more language around, like, how do you find meaning in the darkness without having to say, having to revert to, like, really easy cliches? Like that Mm -hmm. God is always closing doors and opening windows or, you know, like that there's always like an explanation we can always understand. Like not that there aren't beautiful things there, but like, but it's, it's pretty reductive to just expect other people to, um, to always like know the reason why they're suffering. So that's, that's been part of the, like the best part of this like post illness life is, is realizing that almost everybody is, has a life that's also fragile and um and and they're still learning to find beautiful things in the midst of it. You have courage. Ooh, I can hear courage in your voice. Oh, thank you. Talk talk to me about courage and faith and hope and mm. all those things that lift people up in the face of something just dreadful. Because yeah. you have courage. I can hear I can hear positive Aww. in you and courage and <laughs> I feel like if there's part of me that's like, you know, wants to like sort of cry and I'm like, no, I don't think she would like that very much. (laughs) Well, like, I don't know. I feel like you just borrow courage from all the beautiful things, right? Like, like when I look at my son, I feel like I'm just like a battery that's being recharged. Like all the gorgeous things are simultaneously the the stuff that breaks your heart. Like, yes, that's the stuff you never want to live without, but that's the stuff that also makes you get up in the day and say things can things have got to go on in a way that's meaningful and real. So, yeah, I mean my my kid makes me feel like I can and should do everything. I mean also that I should take a nap at some point, but like, you know, just so like <laughs> but like what's possible oh, wait, today? He? <laughs> He's he just turned 4, so they like, okay. "Oh man, they are this beautiful nightmare at that age." Just like uh, always narrating the next thing, like, and then we go to the museum, and then we eat apple slices, and then we watch Peppa Pig. It's like, okay, you clearly have the day planned out. I, I thought I, I had stuff to do. Myself, so I, 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 mine are older. Yeah, they're Aww. mine are older. They're sixteen, uh, eighteen, twenty, and twenty-two now. Wow. But um, 
Oh, yeah. I have watched many, many, many a cartoon in my day, and I'm not ashamed to admit I'm addicted to Rescue Heroes, which is a toy that is no longer made, but I own every single one of them. I've stepped on far too many a Lego and shrieked. (laughs) Oh, but that's the good stuff, right? Like, that is the good stuff. Like, I, you know, if I, like, I had a tough day yesterday, and... You know, it's always a tough day when I'm dealing with side effects and cancer stuff and I'm just kind of feeling the weight of being a hospital person. And then I come home and I've got this little person who has just made a plane out of Lego and he has a real strong commitment to snuggling, like really devoted. And he just like <laughs> he has a plan for us and I just get to like tuck into his little reality and it is it's like That's a cute. safe place. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, my sister is uh pregnant with her second baby. And it's a girl. She has a boy who's a little over a year old. And I was telling uh, Brianna Brown this yesterday on the on the air because she's trying to start a family and all this stuff too. And uh, my yeah. sister is um, in this phase of they call I'm old and I have four kids, so they're calling it sleep training. Yes. Like, yeah. I'm like, what is that? I'm like, what's Google? I'm like, what the heck is sleep training? Oh, <laughs> I'm like, really? I never yeah. need to be trained to sleep anywhere. And yeah. it's the process of. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> sorry it's a yeah. getting him to sleep in his own bed yeah. i'm like wait yeah. wait a minute there's a mistake you mean, made oh, you right mean off the bat <laughs> <laughs> totally. so I, so I, texted, I texted my mom and my sister in a group chat and i'm like um there needs to perhaps be a pacifier extraction as well <laughs> <laughs> oh but that stuff like it takes up your whole brain and i think that's like part of the bit about resilience is like when other beautiful things like jockey for space in your brain, that's a relief. <laughs> like it's go, such a relief. Go back to go back to the pacifier extraction. Oh, oh that's my, my new my new phrase. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> oh, so you get it. Yeah, four years old. That's a great age. Oh my gosh. And then yeah. um, it was so funny because in this chat, we my sister's like, "Yep," and I have goals. <laughs> like my mom, my mom's like, "Just tell me one of the goals." She's like, "Potty training." <laughs> Oh, I love it when you're, you know, people have all these goals and business and everything and all this stuff and everything. And I'm just like, goal, potty training. So, I mean, that's so a great basic. goal, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. No, honestly, oh. I think that I learned most of what I needed to learn to deal with cancer from watching my, watching my then toddler. Like he had super, like the stuff he needed for his day was hysterical. Like he needed um, just a lot of extended time to like have a bath or like do anything that takes like two hours in the bathroom. That's hard for me to understand. He needed like a nap. He needed a snack. He needed something lightly hilarious to happen. And he needed to like bounce around. And like, that's pretty much anyone else's day too. Like if I get a minute yeah. to blow dry my hair, I feel like a goddess. Like just give me a second and life gets so much better. I remember this time. I remember this moment. Okay. My kids were literally like zero, two, four, and six. I mean, four yeah. car seats in the car, Strollers, bottles, I mean, you name it, everything, everybody's under six. And I, my husband went to work and I remember this moment of just, we didn't have texts back then either. You know, you didn't have a phone you could text on or anything to, to like this. And I just remember him coming home from work that day and I, the whole day, all I just was like, I just want to shower. <laughs> just want, oh, just shower. oh, totally. Yeah, if I could only just have just basic hygiene and a minute of uninterrupted sleep. 
Oh yeah, these are the dreams. These are the oh, dreams. Oh, I love it. Well, I'm I'm glad you have a great sense of humor, um, <laughs> <laughs> and can see cool. things through through kids. Aren't they just the most adorable thing? Oh, yeah, they so are. Cute. Like right now, my kid is obsessed with me telling him made up stories about a dog named Ruffy. So every night I have to come up with a new iteration of like Ruffy and the bear, Ruffy versus the chickens. And like, what's so great about it is they live in this way that stretches out the present in this gorgeous way. And I like I learned from that, like, instead of just imagining like, it's 9pm, this is what normally happens at 9pm, I, I start to think instead of like, this is a moment and a moment is happening. And you need to learn to be there. Mm, I love it. That sounds like a good kids book too, by the way, just so you plant that <laughs> in your in your universe. Um, okay, so tell me a little bit about like, if I were to go by everything happens for a reason and other lives yeah. I've loved, what what would I find in there? What? Um, tell, tell us something that would um, make us go, you know, you want people to buy your book. So tell us about it. <laughs> well, um, wow. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of like it starts it starts where I started, which is at the moment of my diagnosis when I, you know, didn't have cancer in my family. I didn't have any reason to imagine that my life wasn't going to be pretty shiny. And then it all comes apart really quickly. And in the middle of it, um, so I, I go back through my life researching and, like, listening to other people's hopes and dreams for their life and – and like on like i'm i'm kind of on a journey like looking to figure out like how do you live after certainty and like that's not special because it's like a i'm special or it's a cancer book or something like that like it's just a book about like for everybody who's had a before and an after and wonders what it's like to talk about it without necessarily having to say that like life is always getting better, right? Like what, what if you give up on that little piece, but you still want to say things can be beautiful and so real. So yeah, that's kind of what the book is about. Mm. Can you tell us just so it helps somebody, um, how, how did, how did you get diagnosed with um, stage four colon cancer? Like what was, how'd that come about? Like, were you mm-hmm. sick? Like, did you have signs? Did you, um, because usually they, yeah. they harp on and on about, are you over age 50? Then go for a colonoscopy. Oh, I know. But they yeah. don't people at 35. So what, no. what was up, if you don't mind? And if, if you do, just say so and we can go on. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I had stomach pain that I immediately went to a doctor for, but I wasn't, I mean, they just figured it was my gallbladder. And so, I mean, I kept going again and again and kept being turned away. So it was, it was, it was sad, like how late I was in being diagnosed. It was really sad because it had had time to spread. Um, so I think one of the only things to pass on to other people is that if you think that there's something wrong, like that's the time to use your loud voice. Like I used my loud voice right away and it still took about three months for me to get care. But it was only when I used my very loud voice and yelled at a medical professional <laughs> in a way that is yeah. like still surprising to me that I got um, that I got the scan I needed. So, you know, I think often women uh, there, I mean, there's all kinds of studies that like women's pain is not taken as seriously. And often we just present so well because we're so busy being positive. And so if you think there's something wrong, like you're allowed to go and use your loud voice and sometimes it'll save your life. You know, this isn't um, a cancer story, but it's just uh, a story about 
me and doctors. I went to the doctor one time, and it, it sort of helps illustrate what you're saying too, only on a on a like a a general scale of um like everyday you know like yeah. strep yeah. throat. I'm just going to use strep throat for example, um, and how I went to the doctor, and the doctor is like, "You look good." Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no, mm-hmm. no, I don't feel good. <laughs> That's not how this works. It's I might have my makeup on because I might run into somebody I know, but I feel like yeah. total crap. And they yeah. w- they were like, well, we're just going to send you home. So I went home, and I'm like, well, you know, I just got a diagnosis of you look good. <laughs> yeah. You know, thanks. You know, kind of thing. And I'm like, you know, I don't feel right. And my temperature was spiking up to dangerous levels, and my stomach hurt, and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm not. I don't feel right. I'm going back. And um, I went to a female doctor this time, you know, not that there's any difference of male or female or anything like that, but I just changed it up. And I went in and I said, I really don't feel good. And um, she kind of said the same thing. You don't, you don't look like you don't feel good. I'm like, well, what exactly does that look like? (laughs) Cause I don't feel good. And I said, just do me, humor me and just swab my throat because this feels like strep throat. Like when I, sure enough, dangerous strep throat. You know, kind of thing. And so I agree with you so much that you really have to, uh, and that's a, a, that's a, you know, example on a lesser scale, of course, but I mean. No, but that's right. Yeah. And women need to be told, I think in particular, that it's okay if we don't present well. Like we're allowed to just kind of, especially in a place where you need help, like you can go in and be a mess. Like I remember feeling like I had to be really um, cheerful and positive even on my like intake process when I'd been in labor for almost a day. Like I was, I, I, I should have been, you know, I don't know, maybe lightly screaming at that point. And instead I'm like (laughs) small talking, casually commenting on the state of world news. And I mean, they almost turned me away because they said, well, you don't have the look of someone in labor. And I'll never forget. I, I, immediately said, well, I'm sorry, but I am unfortunately amazing at being miserable. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's my thing too. You know, it's like with the childbirth and all of it. So yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm proud that you used your loud voice to get what you needed. Um, <laughs> for sure. Oh, it's hard though. It's just hard. Oh. I mean, it's hard to like, I think it's just hard to be vulnerable in the world, right? Like, we all have a mess somewhere and it's so tempting to just go out and hide it. And of course there's like a time and a place for everything, but like there's, it just makes it, it just makes it a little harder sometimes to get the help you need when you need it. Or um, even just to like give yourself permission to like feel what you're feeling. Like my, sometimes I, I mean, I got so used to being in chronic pain that I, I would just sort of forget that it was my body and that was great for like getting work done and still having a life and going out with friends, but that was terrible for self-care. I mean, that was, that was a nightmare because I'd forget, like even now I forget like, Oh, Kate, you still have cancer. Like you should probably take a nap. And I'm like, naps are for losers. <laughs> it's just like forging into the future, <laughs> even losers. though I really want a nap so badly. <laughs> you know what? Yesterday, I did the same. I was like, you know, I really need a nap. And I said that to myself. I'm like, no, naps are for lazy, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And I'm yes. like, no, we need a nap. And I, I we did. need I like a pro napping culture. Oh, yes. so funny. Yes. All right. Yeah. Pro napping culture. Yeah, I get it. Um, I used to just use my kids as the best excuse to nap. 
<laughs> yeah, totally. Oh my gosh, their downtime? You're right. That was maybe one of my best, weirdly enough, that was one of my best years of like taking care of myself is the yeah. year after Zach was born and I got to stay at home because I was I, the university had a nice maternity leave. And what was so lovely is during his naps, I could nap for the first mm-hmm. time ever. It was like one of the first times there was it was just like, yeah, you can kind of create a new rhythm of life around your little snuggly one. Yeah, there's some there's different there's different theories on that. You know, some people are like, oh, he's out for a nap. I'm going to get everything done. I'm like, no. yeah, <laughs> going to super yeah. effort. Oh man, I know this like superwoman disease. It's everywhere. Uh, no, all right. So I want to go to um, go to some questions, and um, sure. I'm I'm sort of hating on this phrase too. And I'm a self help guru. I yeah. I wrestle with it. I do. Every day I wrestle with this phrase. I can't quite get my arms around everything happens for a reason because yeah. it's like, well, gosh, darn it. That's a terrible thing to happen. Why would that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like maybe there is like and I wouldn't ever want to like reach into someone else's like spiritual journey and say that they maybe won't someday find that something beautiful was related to something terrible, you know, like people who have kidney failure and then, and then someone, and then this amazing person is the match or like there's, there's a richness Mm -hmm. to the feeling that everything is like a divine conspiracy. It, It makes us feel loved by God. But at the same time, like pretending that everyone knows the reason is really exhausting for those who are experiencing not just setbacks, but tragedies like it also pretends that things are always somehow better, even if it's just enriched perspective. Like I, I would, I would shudder to think that people who've lost a child are have to be told that like somehow ass better, and and just removing that kind of the stigma attached to having to then explain all your suffering while you're suffering, it, that's exhausting. I used this phrase this morning. Oh, I, wrote, wow. being temp- I did. No, I did. Yeah. I was like, you know, today I'm going to use this phrase because I'm sort of believing in it a little bit more. But I wrote mm-hmm. being temporary lost in life and your career is, is all part of life and living. It happens. Find the trail markers again and keep your footing grounded. Everything happens mm-hmm. for a reason. So I mm-hmm. used it, you know, and, and I was like, mm-hmm. ah, I don't know if I should use that or not because I'm not. Well, I wrestle but I think with what I like phrase. what you're saying, though, because like what you're I think it's possible to logical. say, though, that like. That like what we need, especially when things come apart, is a sense of agency. Like it's a feeling that we're getting traction in our lives, that we can move forward, that we find that little possibility, and we don't just like collapse into ourselves. I think people really need to hear that. That's the way I mean it. I'm like, yeah. Try and I, I sometimes I write it like you know, find a glimpse of positive mm-hmm. in what's happening. If if it's yeah. super, I mean, I we have experienced some devastating moments. Um, in our family and life and so forth. And um, one, one thing that we always seem to have, no matter what happens, is never give up and yeah. positive, no matter what. Like, even if it's super tragic, if you reach out and give some positive energy even to somebody else, it spreads positive instead of negative. And I don't know yeah. if that's right or wrong. Well, I think there's, I a, that, I mean, there's, there's a, right a part of it I really like. Like, the part I really like is, yeah, I mean, after the worst day of my life, I actually did need to get up and fight and fight for what was, like, 
good and beautiful in my life, and that required a sense that, like, there was still going to be meaning, there was still going to be traction, like, I can lean into this. And, I mean, that's the reason I got better care is I, I, I found a way to get up again, and I'm, I'm grateful for the positivity of those around me to help me do that and something in me, I think. But um, the part that was probably the worst, though, is sometimes the culture of positivity – is a real burden for someone like me. Like, for example, like I might go into the hospital and I think culturally it's just more acceptable to say like, like, let's be positive. Like there's always something good, but there's like an intake form and you're supposed to be honest on the intake form. And you're supposed to say like, like, like I have, you know, dead nerves in my feet. I have like, cause you're, you're, you're trying to account for what's happened with chemotherapy. So you're supposed to be honest. And I can't tell you the number of times I've had a nurse tell me in that moment that I should just be positive. I'm like, what's frustrating from doing is being a patient. Like that's the moment I'm supposed to be able to let go and say like, this is not negative. This is reality. And that ended up feeling like a burden to me. You know, um, I, in my book, um, the gal who wrote the book with me, Dr. Katie Eastman, she used to talk about this a lot and it was allow yourself to grieve, allow yourself Mm -hmm. to be miserable, allow yourself those moments. And she used to say the same exact thing, you know, Um, and she was children's palliative care. She's a children's palliative care expert. And she used to say, you know, sometimes things just flat out stink. And no, you don't want somebody around you going, isn't it dandy? You know, I know you can't have someone throw confetti on your tragedy. That's exactly right. And like, uh, I mean, at the same time, I do love it when people are still always trying to find like, yes, but what can I do for you today? Like, how do we make today a little brighter and sweeter and lovelier? That I love that. I really love. Yeah. Yeah. That helps. But, you know, just to sit around and always be positive, you know, I'm not, oh my you, know, gosh. I you know, okay, I yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I would real. be insane, yeah, because yeah. like, I notice it too in the hospital room sometimes, like, and those are the, so I, I think it was, let's see, it's about a year ago, I wrote this piece for the New York Times that was just about what it was like to, to wonder, you know, what, what I really expected from life and how the second I felt ambivalent about it, like, I'm not sure what this is going to be mean. All I said was, Hey, look, I don't know what's going to happen, but please just don't pour your certainty on my pain right now. Like, please, please just like stop telling me you always know how things are going to work out. Cause the truth is like, I'm on the edge, you know, I'm just on the edge of what medicine can promise. And um, so I got thousands of letters and one of the, like the whole, there's a whole group of them that were so sad because they were usually, children or of um, people who'd had really awful things happen or or people just kind of on the front lines of suffering. And what they said was, man, positivity often meant that, like, I was watching people force my elderly mom to put a big smile on her face, like, as she's getting her terrible scan news. And I thought, like, yeah, like, that's the bit where it really is, it really is a burden we put on the suffering when we ask them to act grateful for their worst moments. Yeah. And in, in my book, we, um, my, my dad is really sick. Um, and he's a stroke survivor with, um, a, you know, ha- a hemorrhage stroke after that. So he's, you know, he's been fighting for his life since about 2004. Oh, oh yeah. It's been quite an interesting, horrible, um, journey in moments, yeah. but you know, there's, you know, there's up and down, 
um, you know, like I, t- I try and talk to my parents every day, at least, at least one of them. I don't live quite near them. So I go home as much as I can, you know, I'm not perfect in that score at all. Um, but you know, when things matter, I'm home and yeah. um, we, my mom, you know, when somebody is that sick in the hospital, I mean, we're in the ICU, we're duking it out moment by moment for his life. And, um, you know, the cheeriness wasn't there. What was there was a fight, a Mm. fight for life. It wasn't like, oh, things are great and peachy and happy. But the one thing that I noticed was if my dad died, my mom was going to die with him. It was a fact. They've been married for 43 years. And so I served as um, a guard, you know, a, a moment. When my dad was that sick, I was there to keep my mom alive. <clears throat> and because we didn't think my dad was going to pull through. And um, that was my role to come home and, uh, and go back and forth between Maine and Minnesota to keep my mom alive. And that did involve, how can I cheer you up? How can I make this better? And yeah. one thing we did was um, we would go sweater shopping and put them on as superhero capes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, you know, we couldn't find superhero capes that weren't, you know, odd, but we would pick out the funkiest sweaters and just wrap them around our shoulders and they were superhero capes. And we were, we would, you know, sort of roll our sleeves up and, you know, go, okay, how are we going to help him live? Yeah. You know, what what are we going to do to try and make him live through ICU? Because ICU is a terrible place and God, you know, yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's a good place, but a terrible place in a way. And all you people in ICU units, I, I'm not offending. I'm just saying, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a, yeah. it's a hard, tough place. That's probably a better word yeah. for it. And yeah. um, my dad was fortunate about a year later to do the life lap, you know, and ring oh, the bell, that? you know, having oh, lived through there. Oh, oh that's so. Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, and we did so things real. like when he was really sick, we would, um, we plastered the wall with photographs. That's yeah. one tactic we had. And we would play movies because he loves movies and things like that. But this is, you know, coma stuff. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, um, but, yeah, those superhero sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, all. I so love it. That was our little tra- trying to find our positive energy without being all like, like yeah. you said, let me throw confetti around because, no. Yes, that's great. But just to, like, set, I don't know, like, like put the beautiful things right in front of him. Like these are the these are the pictures of the things you love. Like these are the gorgeous things that can crowd out the darkness. Yeah. So what? Tell me. Teach me. What's prosperity gospel? Teach us. Because oh, sure. you you know you're a historian. You're a professor at Duke Divinity School. I mean, we have a lot to learn. Teach us, if you don't mind. I'm. I'd like oh, to just sure. be quiet yeah. and learn. <laughs> well. Um... So the prosperity gospel is a movement that really um, it kind of came of age in uh, in the era of television in the 60s and 70s. Came associated most popularly with the televangelist, and what it was was a message of more that if you there in their language they would say if you believe and confess then you will possess. So if you can conceive of it in your mind and speak it out loud, then it will come true, and um, and it was it grew up out of Pentecostalism, which was a, a movement that was really um, interested in signs and wonders. So, like, how do we know God is here? Well, we know it from these signs. And so um, in the 60s and 70s, people often just looked particularly to money and to health as the major sign 
to tell if you were being faithful. And um, what was so, I guess, attractive about the movement was not just that it promised a lot, but it was really fun to be around. <laughs> like, if anyone remembers, like, the – did you ever watch, like, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker or any of the, like, 1980s yeah. uh, televangelism? I admit it, and, I like, did. Yeah, and like it's um, it looks a lot kind of like the Lawrence Welk show, but like love that like show. plus Christianity. Yeah, it's really it's it was really sweet and like fun. And when they wanted to build, uh, Jim and Tam- when Jim and Tammy wanted to build kind of a like a place to understand the prosperity gospel better, they built a theme park in South Carolina called Heritage Park USA, and. It was like the third most visited place after both Disneyland's for families every wow. year. So it ha- it was maybe um maybe 10 to 15 million people were watching uh Christian televangelism in the late 80s and uh and it was so it was both a it was a very visible and also incredibly profitable movement. Um but what happened was um was a few things as it spread in big churches and on TVs uh it it helped explain to Americans um not only that um they could ask for material things from God uh but that they also had themselves to blame if they didn't come true and so it, it's one of the most popular messages in large churches which is to say like churches over 10,000 about 40% of them by my calculation are prosperity mega churches and uh so what that means is like it's an incredibly popular message in big churches and in like paperbacks that you'll find at Walmart and stuff um and while it's wonderful for uh experiencing like joy and uh, wonder and setting new horizons, what it struggles to do is it, it struggles to account for persistent suffering and also for communal solutions. Um, so it tends to be quite individualistic. So if you if you are a success, congratulations to you. If you are a failure, it must be entirely your fault. And so it's been um, – so in writing the history of that, I spent a lot of time with people in the pews um, asking them, uh, what they hoped for uh, from their lives, and found that it's um, it's a it's a message that um, is sort of double-edged, for some tremendously empowering, and others um, um, kind of shaming. Hmm. How did you get interested in all of this? <clears throat> well, I, yeah, voice. I mean, so I'm Canadian, so this was not typical. This was not normally my bag. I'm from uh, <laughs> I'm from like the middle of Canada, and I honestly I'd seen a little bit of Christian televangelism, but I figured like, oh, that's for Americans, like that's not for Canadians. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, I noticed that there was a prosperity church in my hometown, and I thought, what? That's again, that's for Americans. And I just decided. Um, you know, I'm I'm the daughter of a historian, so I, you know, I immediately clicked into that part of my brain and thought, hey, has anyone written anything about this? Like, where is it from? How do we explain um, how we explain its history? So I, uh, yeah, so I started at like 22, um, researching, and then by 28, I had uh, mostly written the first history of it. That's so cool. What it was you weird. It was like super nerdy. Was- <laughs> I am super nerdy and it's all good. <laughs> we, we we travel together. Um good. do you uh and no you're not nerdy. Do you what did you learn in doing this? I guess I learned that um I think people I think the main thing I learned is like 
the movement is is known mostly for its caricatures, like for the the pre, you know the pastors that have private jets and have his and her Bentleys and stuff. It's mostly known for its scandals. And what I found is that the people who attend those churches, that their lives are pretty ordinary. They want ordinary things. They want kids that obey them and reasonably healthy bodies and enough money to go around. Like their hopes are a lot more. Um, average in the most beautiful way and it helped me realize just how basic we all are <laughs> like mm-hmm. it was it helped me get past a lot of the stereotypes and then think more honestly about my own life in those terms um talk to me about i'm gonna just go on grief for a minute do you mind talking about grief because mm-hmm. i think sure. um i'm gonna give you my opinion and then just you know and people yeah. listening i don't know if my opinion is whatever, but it's just my opinion. Um, it seems to me that there are a lot of people that are in grief and that a yeah. lot of people hide grief. A yeah. lot of people are suffering through grief, don't know how to process grief, you know, whatever you uh, put your, whatever it is about grief, there's a lot of grief. And what I notice in social media is there's a bunch of different things happening. Of course, mm. one, one thing I see is everything's rosy. Everything's always yeah. positive. Everything's always happy. Yeah. Um, and for some of us brands, we're kind of that way. Like yeah. my brand wouldn't suddenly change where I told you everything miserable, you know. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. God, I just stubbed yeah, my toe. You know, no, I wouldn't yeah. do that. So, so some of us, you yeah. know, position our social media in such a way. But then I see in, um, and I'm pretty vulnerable, you know, if you, you know, people can email me or whatever. And I talk about everything that's happened in my life and my book is certainly out there. Um, so I'm not one of those, everything's rosy, but you know, if you're trying to inspire people, you know, you're not going to put downer stuff out there. Sure. Um, yeah. uh, however, um, there's another uh, group of social media that I see and I pay very, very close attention. For some reason, my body, brain, and soul are honed in on people suffering. I have no idea why, but I'm mm. just in tune to it. I hear it. I see it and everything. So on my Facebook feed, um, I'm more apt to to scan through and see. Oh gosh, please pray for me. I'm in the hospital. Yeah. Please pray for my parents. Please. I, sad, everybody's like, oh, Facebook's like a political stewing ground right now. And I'm like, wow, my Facebook feed is filled with please pray for me. Wow. That's what I yeah. see when I go in there. And oh, so I think people see different things depending on their vibe. And I just every day, every time I see it, I try and go. You know, and then there's this whole, I know you chime in and interrupt me, um, but there's a whole thing out there that prayers aren't enough and it just depends on the circumstance of everything. But, you know, some people just politely ask that you think about them because yeah, they're hurt. Right. That's right. It takes a lot for somebody to go on Facebook and say, hey, I'm hurting here. Can you think about me? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about so that? Uh, that's a- Well, yeah. And I mean, like, that's been one of the trickier parts for me is. I mean, I have experienced so much love through, like, putting an update on Facebook, for instance, if I've got scan results or something. Um, yeah. But it's also been – and, like, I and I think that – because the key is, like, what I want is I want the love and the prayer. I really do. Like, I yeah. really want that support and also the sense that, like, I'm allowed to – I'm allowed to be fragile. I'm allowed to need things and I'm allowed to need my people to like come around me. Um, and that's been, that's been really beautiful to watch. Um, 
just how like I met a man this week um who I I'd forgotten I I'd said something at my church like right when I got sick and you know that was it was like right after my diagnosis and I'm sure it was like a pretty raw weepy um uh like speech that I gave if we can call it a speech <laughs> and yeah. uh and I I ran into him and he's like you you probably don't know me but I was there at your um, and he remembered the date, and he said, "We, my wife and I, had been praying for you every day since then." And oh my like, gosh! What a gorgeous way of having like been a placeholder. Like he like set, he like made space in his life for my suffering. Like what? What an honor! I was so touched by that. Yeah. Aren't people fascinating like that? I am. I'm always so grateful when. Um, people do things like that because, um, you know, I'm, I've almost died twice from, um, anaphylaxis. I have really terrible food allergies. I mean, devastating food allergies and I live with them every day and I pick, you know, I have to really be careful what I eat. And it's not just like a little gluten allergy or anything like that, which are serious too, but you know, it's like, it's not like I I avoid eating things. It's like, no, if I eat that, I go down and fighting for my life. And, um, the kindness is always, um, fascinating to me when somebody else will reach out and say, Hey, are you okay today? How are you? You know, that kind of thing. And there's a pretty good food allergy community. But what I really wanted to say was um, less about me and more back to my dad for a minute. Um, I I wanted to talk about the the people that surround you when you're not feeling so great um, and bring in a conversation about that. Because I remember posting on Facebook, my dad's really sick, everybody. And this sucks. And this is a cool guy completely taken down by this and he's going to suffer, you know, and, and have all these things and, you know, it puts a big lump in your throat as you're even talking about it right now. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I remember saying, I'm going to be in Minnesota, I'm flying home and um, I'll be darned if there were, there were a lot of people that showed up for me, but two people came to the hospital and Aww. showed up for me. Wendy Pett. <laughs> and Scott oh my they came right yeah. to the hospital to Burnsville, yeah. Minnesota and um, sat and prayed with me, talked to me. Yeah. Are you yeah. okay? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not the one hurting. <laughs> and they're yeah. like, yes, you are. And I yes, didn't really realize it. Um, you know, I kind of meant it more like for my dad, like when I was posting it, I'm yeah. like, pray for my dad, pray for my dad. And they made me realize that I was in grief too. Yeah. It was really interesting. I'm like, I, when they showed up, I'm like, no, 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 I'm okay. And they're like, are you really though? Yeah. And then it yeah. made, taught me about my mom. That moment mm. taught me about how to care for my mom. Cause I was like, oh crap, this isn't mm. about, this is about my dad. Yeah. But this is about, you know, all of us. Yeah. Yeah. That's Can right. you talk about that? Well, yeah. And I think this is just a part that I'm, I mean, I think the crisis of illness was really, it was so isolating at first, like, like just when it's, when it's you who's the patient, like you're the only, it's in your body. So you're the only one who can do most of the stuff, right? Like you're the one that has to feel the needle go in. You're the one that has to like take the deep breath before going into surgery. Like it's your body and it can feel really isolating because all the people who love you can't enter into that with you. And that's like the worst feeling in the world. But I have also just kind of come out of that isolation realizing that like, wow, the people around me were feeling so helpless, 
were struggling, like they were having a simultaneous experience of that suffering and like they need people too. And like, they also need me in that experience too. So I've just, I've kind of been, have had my eyes open to a whole different awareness of like what my husband and my family must have gone through. And it's been really, um, I mean, we basically just, we had two very different experiences, but like theirs is so real and raw to me in a way that it couldn't quite be before because everything was such an emergency. Do you have a little bit more time? Can What's you keep that? going or do you need to, do you have a little bit more time Yes, to yeah, talk absolutely. to us, you know, on the yeah. air? Um, yeah. Because we're going to, we're going to run out of time and go into record mode here. Cause we, do you realize we've been talking for like almost an hour? <laughs> Can you keep going for a little bit more? Yes, there's, yes. There's a couple more things I want to, um, okay. So tell me about, um, why did why did you put lie in there in your book? What, what's that mean? Like yeah. the biggest lie you ever believed about yourself? What's that mean? Oh man, Whew. well, like that was what I was trying to get real about. Like, you know, that I'm the architect of my own life, and everything is that I'm in charge of almost everything that affects me, and that you know that everything happens for a reason, and that I can know that reason. I mean, there were so many. I think lovely and delicious bits of arrogance on my part that I imagined that I was this like fully developed, you know, <laughs> fully realized human who could control all the circumstances of my life. And when I realized like, oh man, I have come to the end of myself. Like almost everything that's going to change my life is based on stuff I'm not in control of. Like I don't have a cancer lab in my house. So I don't get to be in charge of like cancer discoveries. <laughs> and I, right. you know, I wasn't in charge of my insurance company making certain decisions and I didn't pick this kind of cancer. I mean, just all these things that are defining my life, I have no control over. I just, but in surrendering those, I still found something really beautiful. So yeah, I called them lies because I, I mean, and I, I say that so affectionately because I miss them. <laughs> I miss some of them. <laughs> I miss that feeling that I'm in charge. Oh, I miss it. But it was a delusion, yeah. you know, just like saying that everyone's always going to be fine is a delusion. Like, you know, we, we get to take turns being fine. And in the meantime, we anyway. surround and love each other. Yeah. When, you know, somebody will say, you know, I'm having a really crappy day. And I'm like, well, here, borrow my good get, good day and I'll trade you. When I have a yeah. bad day, I'm going to call you. <laughs> You yeah, know? that's right. Because <laughs> like, right. we trade off, don't we? We do, and we need each other so badly. Yeah. What um. What are like? What are goals? How do goal? Yeah. What do goals mean to you? What's, what <laughs> are those know. looking like right you're now? Like, I know. Oh, I'm you're curious. catching me at such a weird time for goals because, like, no, I my only goal. Them, huh? Well, because I, it's weird because if you don't speak in the future tense, right? Like, because you just, I don't know, cancer just, you don't speak yeah. with certainty anymore. You speak with hope, but not certainty. And so, yeah, I mean, the my dream for my book was just that I would live to see it published. And then, and like, it was, it was written at such a fragile time. And then to see it come out in the world is so beautiful to me. Oh, my word. Mm. And like seeing it, because my my hope was this is for my husband and my son and this is for all those tender suffering people who just want a little bit more language without having to immediately just say everything happens for a reason. Right. And so just Mm -hmm. like watching other people be 
yeah, what being in community with others with the book release has been more than I hoped for. <laughs> so I yeah. like right now I have no goals. I just have gratitude. So I'm sure eventually I'll need some, but right now I'm like, like already that. so bowled over. So. Yeah, I I don't have goals. I just have gratitude. You know, that's, uh, you know, sometimes people ask me that too. It's like, well, what are your goals? I'm like, you know, I don't know right now. I've got to think about Mm -hmm. that a little bit because um, a lot has come true. There's, there's things that, you know, you want to do that aren't quite there within your reach. You know, it just depends on what's going on. So I root in gratitude heavily, especially having died, you know, a couple of times, you're just like, you know, gratitude is key because you know what, you're not guaranteed that next breath. And I don't know if people realize that or not, but I've fought for my life. And so I kind of go rooted in gratitude, like there's a breath. Okay, good. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Heavily rooted in breathing. I think I'm going to like pray for the right goals because before I would have just put something that's shiny in front of me and said, I should run toward that. But like, I don't want that anymore. I want to be hungry for the right kind of, like the right kinds of things. And I, and I hope it'll be good. I love that. Um, How is your health right now? I'm in the managing illness phase. Yeah. I'm just, I'm kind of in, I'm in purgatory. I'm like in the middle. So I just have to kind of keep track of scans and see how they go. And so far, so good. But it just, mm-hmm. it's like in being in limbo. So I don't ever say terrible and I don't say fine. I just, I kind of stay in limbo just for now. Yeah. yeah. Um, what? Okay, I have two more questions and then I promise I'll be quiet. <laughs> but I love talking to you. It's such you an too. interesting conversation. And I, 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 what I love is how, how um, you know, you're you're pretty you make yourself pretty vulnerable to people asking you about you and your life and your you know there's I, I love that because it helps us it it touches other lives and gives us hope and faith and some and you know all this stuff um you learn that? are you that way well, no, I mean, I just, honestly, I think I've just given up on pride. <laughs> I think I have. <laughs> like, I don't know. It was like you get sick and then all of a sudden you're in rough cotton and everyone has seen your body and you're like, okay, like, I think I'm just going to have to try something else. And so I'm I'm grateful that I get to do meaningful work. I'm grateful that I know beautiful people. But, like, in the meantime, I'm just going to try to learn to be honest, like, honest about how much things are hard and how much things are lovely and how much I'm still just trying to figure it out. Can you take, I always ask this question to everybody who comes on this show. What were you like as a kid? Go back Mm. to your four-year-old self and tell me about you and, you know, have you, yeah. And, and take me back on up to where you are now. Like, have you always, have you always been interested in, you know, being a professor? Have you always written, Mm. have you, you know, all those things? Well, I was, um, I'm a middle kid, and I've always been a goofball, and my parents used to call me the lump, because I would just sit there and, like, soak in everybody else <laughs> running around, and uh, and I think I've always been really sensitive, like, I was super unpopular growing up, because I just had a hard time hiding my emotion, and I, I think the best part of all of that is that I love I love recognizing what makes other people human. That makes that's what makes me love being a historian. And now it's giving me a little more, I don't know, vocabulary to try to understand this predicament I'm in. 
But the best part about all that sensitivity that has always been there is that, like, it lets it lets me feel open to the pain in the lives of other people. And that is, like, the greatest gift at a time like this. Mm, I love it. All right, is there anything I haven't talked to you about that you want to tell us or talk about? No, or, or this anything? is lovely. No. Thank you right, so much good. for having me. I'm so grateful. Oh, my gosh. I'm so grateful that you said yes on Twitter. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. Twitter brings people together. Twitter, yeah. <laughs> not usually, but in our case, yes. <laughs> I love it. Um, thank you for the thank you for the laughter. Thank you for the love. Thank you for the gratitude. Thank you for teaching us, and thank you for being you. And um, just thank you for being here with us. I appreciate your time and your energy and everything in this whole show. And I just um, just Really, really, really appreciate you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. you. Thank you. All right, everybody. So we've gone over our time. I want to thank um, Kate Bowler for being with us. Her book is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And um, I just really appreciate her time and energy, like I've said. Um, I hope you guys um, have learned and laughed and everything with us today. And I, one thing that I love, and I talk about this a lot on Best Ever You, is that uh, we started grassroots. You know, you know me, and you know the show. We've done over 420 shows now, and uh, the website, and magazine, community, all of it. It started very grassroots, and we don't have advertising. In fact, I joke that I'm very husband funded. <laughs> and uh, so we, what I love is when you guys all listen and really wrap your arms around our guests. We bring people here for a reason. Um, and I don't mean everything happens for a reason. <laughs> I mean, we really brought her here for a reason to teach us something today and um, and learn and um, support Kate and her book and so forth. That's what I really love about our community here at Best Every Year. We really support each other and um, we're building that community of trust that I've talked about from day one. So you know you're in a safe place. You can talk about anything and um, we will support you and love you and so forth. So visit katebowler.com and um, her book again is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And um, I'm back into my mom college baseball mode (laughs) with Cam. We, uh, the season opener there at New Haven is March 6th. And, um, we're just really happy for the New Haven chargers that they're ranked 23rd in the whole country. And I'm glad our son is a part of that team. And so, um, we're going to see that home opener and then we're going to all head to Florida for more games where it's not snowing, like it is about to here in Maine and all that good stuff. So, um, I do have some shows in between, um, the home opener and going to Florida. So I have two shows on the 8th and 9th of March. Um, and I hope you'll join me for those shows. Also some great guests, um, coming up. So, um, thank you again to Kate Bowler. Thank you all for listening. Um, and I hope you have a wonderful best ever you kind of day. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the best ever you show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with best ever you.